Well, it was good to have that uh, little break in between, and I know you probably feel that way because there's a lot coming your way, and uh, it'll be coming your way this hour. Uh, the great, great privilege of, of preaching God's Word. I, I sometimes, uh, when I'm preaching it, I, I'm preaching to myself, and uh, and I'm actually, when I'm saying to you, you need to believe what you hear, I'm actually saying, Lord, increase my belief, increase my faith through the preaching of the word that I'm preaching uh, so that uh, I'm sanctified by your word. And one of the things that, uh, that uh, every preacher knows, and your pastor will tell you this, that you go and you, you do the work in the word and you begin to find out what it says you begin to see how it breaks down, you see how it works, you see what's being said, and as you do this, your own soul gets plowed by it. It's like the Word of God cuts deep, bleeding furrows in your heart, and when your heart gets plowed, then you're ready to preach, right, right, Pastor? So that it comes, it's not just over your lips, it comes out of your heart and through your mind without any phoniness or affectation as you preach God's word, to be stunned by uh, what you're preaching. And I find this to be stunning. So as we, we warm up this text, you're back in Philippians. We're looking at uh, verses 9 through 11, which is Christ's super exaltation. We just looked at his super humiliation. Now we're going to look at his super exaltation, and, and my prayer is that he'll plow my heart and plow your hearts, uh, cut some, cause us to uh, gracious, some gracious wounds in us that we might conform to him. Now, the sense in which Christ wore the servant's towel from eternity, because as a lamb, he was slain before the foundation of the world, he was uh, eternally determined to redeem. And uh, you, you get this in the opening chapter of Ephesians. You can read about it there. And that we see that Christ's self-humiliation, his super-humiliation, was due to his eternal resolve. So in verse 6, there was humility in heaven, who though he was in the form of God, you see it in verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, Christ viewed his equality with God as qualifying him for his humble descent to save people. An amazing thing. His humility qualified him, so to speak, in his exaltation to do what he did. And then secondly, following his humility in heavens, the humility in the incarnation, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and he fully identified with the human race and fully identified with servanthood just as he made so graphic in the upper room, John 13, on the night of his crucifixion when he donned a towel and washed their feet. And then thirdly, there was humility and death and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's verse 8. Nothing could be lower. He became an obscenity for us. We're 
just as we were chat- chatting out there, someone said, you know, that when you talked about a crucified cat or a crucified dog, and say a crucified golden retriever or something like that, I mean, that is, that is just such a loathsome thing. And then we were talking about the fact that if that was put, painted on a roadside sign, you'd be hauled in before the authorities. You could put nudity on a roadside sign. You could put blasphemy on a roadside sign. But Peter would have you crucified for doing it. Very interesting thing, you know, to step back and see the obscenity and horror of what happened to the creator of all things in becoming an atonement for our sins, dying for us. And it was all his doing. Herod didn't humble him. Herod the Endemian didn't humble him. Pilate didn't humble him. The high priest didn't humble him. The Romans didn't humble him. He humbled himself. The humblest man who ever lived was Jesus. Let that sink in. And Jesus was humble from all eternity. There is no one that has ever come close to this, to the humility of Christ. Now, we know from the flow of the text that Christ's self-humiliation was followed by his grand exaltation. So that that down from heaven, down in the incarnation, down in death was followed by his soaring exaltation. To get the feel of this, I, I think, think of a catapult. We all know what a catapult is. Think of that thing being cranked down. And then the final three cranks on that catapult are his humility as he leaves heaven, his humility in the incarnation, and his humility. And that final, final excruciating turn where you've got maybe a whole army cranking that baby down so you get this incredible tension, that final click into place, and then the gear is tripped, launching indescribable exaltation, that compression. And here, Christ's exaltation has two movements. You won't necessarily see them in the text, but this is the outline. There is Christ's past exaltation, verse 9. And then Christ's future exaltation, verses 10 and 11. Christ's past exaltation, Christ's future exaltation, all of it being under the heading, the super exaltation of Christ. Now, the exaltation that Christ now enjoys, The exaltation that took place 2,000 years ago stretches our understanding as this is his exaltation 2,000 years ago in verse 9. Therefore, see the past tense, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Now, this, this is super exaltation. This is the ultimate illustration of Jesus' very own spiritual axiom 
that the Lord Jesus delivered those that were full of religious pride. Here's the axiom. Matthew 23, 11 through 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's an axiom. It's incontrovertible. To, to use a, a big word, it's irrefragible. It won't change. And in keeping with his own spiritual law, Jesus' self-humiliation, all of that compression, so to speak, then brought about his supreme exaltation. And there are really three things that are in this, this uh, supreme exaltation. Though his exaltation is once and for all, it began with the resurrection. Uh, and again, when he had gone down and down and down in his incarnation and his passion and his death, which wrought infinite spiritual compression, you have that explosive moment on Easter morning when the grave could no longer hold him. And in a brilliant moment, when Jesus came right through his grave clothes and uh, through his sealed tomb, and what came was the scarred body of his humiliation resurrected, right? And then, in the following moments, after the resurrection, not at the time of the resurrection, after the resurrection, Matthew tells us, Matthew 28, 2, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Jesus' body was long gone, so to speak. It's kind of like, look, world, the tomb's empty. He's not here. He's resurrected. He lives. And then, following the resurrection, he's on earth for 40 days. He's appearing and reappearing and ministering during those 40 days, teaching them about how he's in all the scriptures. And then on day 40, he leads them out to Bethany. Last chapter of Luke, final verses in Luke 24, and lifting up his hands, so it had to be something like this, or maybe like this, his nail-scarred hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So you have Christ just sort of elevating up to heaven with his nail-scarred hands above the apostles. And the great message of the ascension is that Jesus has gone back into heaven and will return again in like manner as the angels uh, explained to the apostles. This is in Acts 1. Luke writes Acts 1. He writes the final chapter of Luke. He writes Acts 1. What does he say in Acts 1? Acts 1, 9 through 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking heavenward? This Jesus, who was taken up from you to heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. And the context there 
is that he, as he rises, he is caught up in the clouds and he disappears and they're looking and they say, what are you looking up? He's coming back again in like manner. So you have his resurrection, 40 days later, his ascension, and then his exaltation, which, which caps the whole thing when he is exalted to the right hand of God. There he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1.3, where he exercises his session making intercession for us. So the great message of the exaltation is the resurrected, ascended Christ reigns in exaltation. Now, the scriptures contain no narrative or account of the moment of his exaltation when the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed was restored to him. John 17, 5. The glory is restored. The splendor, the ineffable splendor is restored to him. Maybe there's no account because it's beyond description. How could you describe it? We know now from the revelation that myriads of angels sing to him, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. Angels singing that around the throne. I have to say it, that, that restoration of his glory, so to speak, and his exaltation, I mean, there had to be cosmic fireworks. This is the Lord of the cosmos. There had to be heaven's fanfare unrestricted celebration. So here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul pulls out all the stops using a word found nowhere else in the New Testament as he says, literally, therefore, God super-exalted him. That's the literal. Trans- therefore, God super-exalted him. Now, I I love the ESV. Uh, That's what I've got. But forget the anemic, highly exalted, and just kind of write, circle that and put super-exalted. Christ received the highest exaltation. It is incomprehensible, and it is in a class by him itself. So the awesome retrospect, as you're looking back at this, Christ's humiliation those three downs eventuated in his resurrection, his ascension, and now his super exaltation as session at the right hand of God as he reigns forever. And this is a theological fact. The upper movement and trajectory of his super exaltation ought to ravish our souls. Am I exaggerating this? Am I saying too much about this? Problem is, I can't say enough about it. I can't describe it. But this is what the scripture is leading us to. 
Now, he's super exalted. And the parallel things that goes with his super exaltation is that he gets a new name. See at the end of verse 9? Because God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So he gets a new name. It's above every name. What is that? Well, we know that, that he's got all kinds of names. Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, the Rock, the Door, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Bread, the Lamb, the Alpha, the Omega. That's just a few of his names. He's got all kinds of names. But what is this mysterious name? Well, the hint lies in the fact that it is above every other name. It's above any one of these names. It's above every other name that there is in existence. It's greater than any other name conferred on Jesus. Now, here's what you'll see, and you'll see it. In fact, it is God's own name, Greek Kurios, Lord, which is used in the Greek Old Testament to represent Yahweh, the personal covenantal name of God. The name given to Jesus that is above every name is Yahweh, God's name, which fills so much of the Old Testament. Now, we know this because if you look down in verse 11, verse 11 identifies Jesus as Lord, Kurios, ultimately Yahweh, as it says, and look at verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the name it's going to confess. That's the name, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. So giving Jesus the name Lord Yahweh is the ultimate of all honors because God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord Yahweh, that is my name. Isaiah 42.8. It is no one else's name, and Yahweh is a name that trumps all other titles. It is the awesome covenantal name of God, the name that is above every name. So he gets super exaltation, and he gets a name that is above every name. Now, does that suggest then that God's Son, who is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and was the Son from all eternity, experienced an increase in power and authority above that that he had before his humiliation? Does it mean that? No way. Nothing could be higher than his eternally being in the form of God and sharing equality with God. You can't get any higher than that. So these terms, super exalted, and the name that is above every name must be understood as referring to the position of recognizable superiority over all creation, and that Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand made his superiority more fully evident to the creation over which he rules. You get it? You see it. See, it is, it's, it's a gain of official glory, not essential glory. 
official glory, recognizable glory in all the universe. So what a moment it must have been those 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered heaven and paradise to super exaltation and his new name. That's history. What about the future? What awaits Jesus in further super exaltation? Well, as wondrous as Christ's past and present exaltation is, the Father of glory has ordained further future exaltation. And I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. So that at the name, this is the future, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to ask you to do something. I want you to, take, I want you to keep, your, keep your place in Philippians and turn back to Isaiah, the 45th chapter, Isaiah 45. This is very, very important. Now notice, back in Philippians, verse 11, uh, or verses 10 and 11, I'll read it again. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the scope and force of this declaration comes from being a, a reference to Isaiah 45, 23, which is Yahweh's declaration that all will worship him. Now look at Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn, this is Yahweh speaking, from my youth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess allegiance. So here in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, Paul quotes and applies... Isaiah 45, 23, the declaration to Jesus. Now, as to how dynamic this application is, we have to understand that the 45th chapter of Isaiah is the most forthright and forthful statement in the Bible of God's sovereign rule in history and salvation. You begin Isaiah 45 where uh, the Lord says, I raised up Cyrus... For the sake of my people. And uh, he says, in, for example, in verse 4, For the sake of my servant Jacob, that's Israel, or Israel my chosen, he says to Cyrus, I call you by your name, a name I name you, though you do not know me, he says to the pagan king. And then he makes four sequential uh, declarations, like in verse 5, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. And then at the end of verse 6, he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. He says, following that in verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. Everything that happens in the universe, whether it's good 
or calamity. I do. I am the Lord, Yahweh, who does all these things. Then down at the end of verse 18, if you look down the very final line there, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other. And then, I'll just have you note this, at the end of verse 22, he says, For I am God, El, and there is no other. I am God, I am Yahweh. Well, here's the thing. He says in verses 22 through 23, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me, Yahweh that is, every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. So you can't miss the connection. Jesus is the Lord Yahweh of Isaiah 45 because Paul applies Isaiah 45 to Jesus. And because Yahweh is his name above every name, at the name of Jesus, back in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and confess on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. That is what's coming. You get it? That is what's coming. Every knee in heaven on earth and under the earth refers to every rational being in the universe. In heaven signifies um, angelic beings. On the earth designates earthly inhabitants, human beings. Below the earth refers to dead human beings and fallen spirits. It refers to every rational being in the universe. No knee in the universe excluded, whether it is human or exelic or demonic. You know what it means? That some will bow in spontaneous ecstasy. I'm talking about this group right here. I mean, that is what we're going to do at that official moment. And then others with grudging, mourning, and shame. But every knee. The certainty of this, if you look back at Isaiah 45, 23, the certainty of it is a divine oath. Isaiah 45, 23, By myself I have sworn, God swears by himself, from my mouth has gone out and righteousness a word that shall not return. It's going to happen to me. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So you have to say, you have to say it responsibly and pastorally to anyone who's hearing this because we may be in all kinds of spiritual states regardless of your spiritual state, regardless of your will, however steely and proud it may be, that you will bow your knee to Jesus. God swears that you will. And he swears by himself that you will. So the only question is when? 
Might as well do it now and get ready for the big bow. Well, the knee also includes every tongue because confession with the tongue is the counterpart of bowing the knee. So Paul concludes, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this really gets hot. Remarkably, this threefold declaration, Jesus Christ is Lord, is apostolic shorthand for the gospel. I remember being with um, uh, a very prominent theologian by the name of Peter Jensen. I was in Australia, and I was walking with him, and I said, tell me what the gospel is, and he said, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. He said, that is shorthand for the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, how so? Look at the words, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus The Lord saves is a name that was given to Jesus' incarnation. It signifies the Lord's salvation came when Jesus was born. They gave him Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus. That's why when Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus into the temple, Simeon, who'd been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and I'm referring to Luke 2, verses 29 and 30, swept him up in his arms, and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I'm looking at salvation, your salvation. So that's Jesus. That's the title Jesus. Second title, Christ means anointed one, a Messiah. That speaks of him as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. I'm sure you know the verse. You've probably heard it many times here in the pulpit. But Paul says, this is my gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That Christ, that is Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So it's Messiah. Jesus, the Lord's salvation. Messiah, Christ. And third, Lord is here understood to represent the divine name Yahweh, which is a public declaration of his sovereignty right out of Isaiah 45. I am the Lord. I am am Yahweh. There is no other. There's none besides me. So this gospel triad, Jesus Christ is Lord, is what we confess in our gathered worship and confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we're doing right now, is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the essential gospel. Well, soon, here it is. Brothers and sisters, every tongue of every rational being in all creation will confess, listen to this, that Jesus, Messiah, is Yahweh. Every believing heart will cry it at the top of his or her lungs in a voice and song, and we with the angels will do it over and over again. 
Jesus Messiah is Yahweh. Jesus Messiah is Yahweh. We will sing it for eternity. And every unbelieving heart will confess it in dismal submission and despair. Now think of this. Satan will do it. His knee, his old knobby knee, whatever it looks like, will bow and his tongue will say, Jesus, Messiah, is Yahweh. Every fallen spirit will do it. Legions and legions of pig-dwelling spirits will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Caiaphas, that cynical high priest of Israel, will confess that Jesus, Messiah, is Yahweh. Herod, the wickedest of men, will confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Pilate, the sophisticated Roman legate, will confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Nero will confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Adolf Hitler will confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Joseph Stalin will confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Pol Pot will confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Hugh Hefner will confess that Jesus Christ is Messiah. And on and on it goes. Every anonymous soul from every age will confess Jesus Christ is Messiah. And then, looking at the last half of verse 11, and this lordship of Christ Jesus will be all to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' sovereign lordship was the Father's plan from the beginning. It's his glory. He super exalted his son and conferred upon him his own incomparable name. Jesus' lordship reveals God's glory as eternal father, the father of Christ. You see, his glory to the whole Godhead. Now, what are we to make of this astonishing Christology, this elegant, nuanced theology of Christ, this welling cantata that rises on and on and on upward? Well, I think it's meant to help us understand the broad contours, then, of his self-humiliation down and down and down, and then his super-exaltation in the past and his new name, and then the confession. We're to understand that Jesus' self-humiliation began in heaven when he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That his self-humiliation moved further down in his incarnation when he emptied himself by becoming a man and a servant, and that his self-humiliation reached the lowest point possible when he became obedient to the point of death, the cross, an obscenity, so to speak, and that Christ's self-humiliation was followed by his divine exaltation, wherein God the Father super-exalted him to incomparable heights where he continues to reign, bearing the Father's name, which is above every name, Yahweh, Lord, and that there is a time coming when everyone, and we will be there and we will see it, everything, every rational being, every demon, every angel, Every human will confess that Jesus, Messiah, is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Here's the deal. 
it's important that the contours of this great passage cycle through our minds and our hearts and our souls. But even more, it's of eternal significance that we believe it with all of our hearts. Now, if, you, if, you, or if you're an unbelieving critic, you say these are the wild imaginings of Paul's rabbinic imagination. It's not that. This is, this is not the playground to theologians. This is what Jesus did for you and me. His self-humiliation really did happen. Only it's far more wrenching than I can describe. And that his super exaltation really did happen. And it's far more splendid and spectacular than I can describe. It's all true and demands our belief. But here's the thing. We need to believe it. We need to believe it. I'll tell you what. You don't need to know more than this. You just need to believe it. Now, here's the, here's the thing about us as humans. We may believe that we believe it, but not really believe what we believe. We may think that we believe it, but really not believe what we think we believe. What we need to do is not believe that we believe it, but we need to actually believe what we believe. Believe it. So I, I think just in a, a moment here, just I don't want anybody to, to uh, I don't want to put you on the spot. I just want you to stop and think. Do I believe the words of Scripture, Philippians 2, 5 through 11? Do I really believe it? Think about it. Think about his self-humiliation, super-humiliation. Do I believe that, what he did? Do I believe in his super-exaltation? Do I believe the words of Scripture, this, this uh, theological cantata, so to speak? All right. Well, this said there's something else that's so pastoral, and that is Paul gave this stunning example of Christ's humiliation, exaltation to motivate the Philippian church to what? Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry of conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So I just want to say that this whole matter of how we treat others, and especially within the body of Christ, has everything to do with what we believe about Jesus. This is a great thing. I'm not talking about some man-generated bootstrap theology and bootstrap ethics of being good people to each other. I'm talking about believing it so much that it just works out in your life. Well, since you've been so 
so attentive, I just want you to see something here. Look back at Philippians. And I'm going to point something out to you. In 127, we read in the ESV, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's calling the Philippians to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And in that verse, it's even more pointed. It's only let your manner of life as citizens, that's the word, politeus they, hear polis in it, implicitly of the kingdom, be worthy of the gospel. That's what he wants. That's the first imperative in the book of Philippians. 19 imperatives in the book of Philippians. This is the first imperative, 27 verses into the first chapter. Only, it's a command. So it's not, it's not a suggestion. It is, let your manner of life as citizens, i.e., of the kingdom, be worthy of the gospel. And then in verses 28 through 30, the rest of that chapter, he talks about how you're to relate to the outside world, the the unbelieving world. He says, uh, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side the gospel, not frightened by your opponents. You're going to stand up the world. Then in chapter 2, he's talking about living a life that's worthy of the gospel. And in chapter 2, those opening verses talk about counting others more important than yourselves. You see? Then he gives the example above all examples, 5 through 11. Jesus, super humiliation and super exaltation. Then in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now not only my absence, presence, but more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about doing it within the body of Christ. And he talks about not grumbling. And then in verses 19 through 24, he gives an example of Timothy as one who looks out for the interests of others. Look at verses 19 and 20. I hope in the Lord Jesus sent Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. He's looking out for the interests of others. And then finally he gives Epaphroditus, who almost died in taking the gospel, looking out for the interests of others. So the thing that I'm talking about here in this massive Christology and doctrine of Christ is that it is the key to living a life that cares for other people. That's the theology that drives it. So looking out for others, considering more important than yourself, encapsulates the role of a good husband in Ephesians 5, right? He counts his wife as more significant than himself, and he looks out for her interest. That is a good husband, right? You ladies think that's a good husband? You want a husband like that? Then have him read Philippians. In fact, he dies for her. He loves her flesh like he loves his own body. That a man like that knows the Fahrenheit of his wife's soul. He keeps her temperature. He knows. 
And then this, 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 this kind of counting others more significant than yourselves practically defines the role of parent in protective fathers and nurturing mothers who regard their children as more important than themselves. And in the church, it defines the role of the elders and pastors. And it's meant to characterize the exchange within the body of Christ between brothers and sisters. We are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. It's not bootstrap. It's not moralistic. It comes out of what you believe about Jesus because what you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you because it will define how you live. This is not a moralistic religion. This is where Christ is everything. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the mind. Um, I'm 70 years old. I've been married 50 years. I've got 26 grandchildren. Ten of them are adopted. I've got three great-grandchildren. Let me tell you something. In fact, I carry a picture. On my, I didn't bring my iPhone. Oh, my wife. It's on, it's on the wallpaper in my iPhone. Or the, when I open it up, it's a picture in black and white. And it's holding our first baby 50 years ago. You know. Well, let me, let me tell you something. I remember the day that that baby was born because uh, we were young. We were in our 20s. Uh, she was just about full term, and we did a foolish thing. I took her down. We were living in California. I took her down to Huntington Beach, number four, Huntington Beach, right by the lifeguard station. She had a yellow bathing suit on, a pregnant bathing suit. I hollowed out a place for her tummy in the sand. She'd lay on her tummy. I went out and uh, body surf for a while and come back and lay down, go back and body surf and lay down. And it was just fabulous. You could see Catalina across the water, and we got a little sunburned. At the end of the day, got in our Volkswagen, drove back up to Whittier where we lived and put the top back in the Volkswagen and burned some more. Stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and that night at about 10.30, she went into labor. Remember when I took her to the hospital, just to the doctor, he goes, pulled back. He said, what have you been doing? I mean, she was just fried and I was fried. And, well, little baby Holly was born after midnight that night. And I remember, I got a picture of her holding that in my phone, this, this little hot star falling from heaven, this little nova, you know, 50 years ago. I blinked my eyes. I was in Presbyterian Hospital in Southern California. I blinked my eyes, and it's 22 years later, and I'm in Central DuPage Hospital in Illinois, and I'm holding Holly's little moist star fallen from heaven, baby Brian. I blink my eyes again, and it's about 21 years later, and uh, I perform the wedding ceremony for Brian and Jessica, and I'm holding another star fallen from heaven, baby Rebecca. I'm telling you, it's gone by so fast, I can't believe it. 
And I'll tell you what, I got about one blink and I'm with Jesus. Or a half a blink. That's how it goes by. And brothers and sisters, what you believe, what you know and you believe about Jesus is everything. It's the most important thing about you. All glory to Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.